It is the last Sunday of the church year, and as we've noted already, there are a number of different themes that circulate about. Christ the King, the Sunday of the Fulfillment, even Judgment Day. But in all Christian traditions, the same story shows up this Sunday, that of the sheep and the goats. It's actually one of the best-known stories of Jesus, a parable. In fact, people who aren't even Christian have heard of sheep and goats and the least of these, that kind of language. To unpack this today, we're going to do three things. First of all, we'll look a little bit at this concept of Judgment Day and sort of trace where it comes from and what's involved in it. But then, more importantly, we'll focus in on what Jesus says in this parable about that. And then, the application, how his acceptance of us drives our acceptance of others, even the least of these. So that's where we're headed. Part one, what's this Judgment Day thing and where does it come from? One of the most famous portrayals of Judgment Day is Michelangelo's from the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican in Rome. Anybody seen that before? The only way you get to see it is if you go to the Vatican Museum, you go early in the morning and as soon as you get in, you race by everything else. <laughs> And to get to the Sistine Chapel, otherwise you'll be so crowded you won't be able to see. But it's just a dramatic and almost horrifying picture of Judgment Day. Is that what Judgment Day is about? Well, this whole concept of judgment has its origin in the prophetic writings of the Old Testament, where prophets talked about the coming Day of the Lord. Uh, Joel and Zephaniah, in particular, were fierce in their descriptions of the day of the Lord, comparing it to all sorts of types of destruction, including an invasion of locusts. Amos used the concept of the day of the Lord to condemn the nations around the Holy Land, Judah in the south, and eventually Israel in the north, to which he was, an, was a uh, prophet. The day of the Lord was a day when things would be set right. Enemies would be punished, even Judah and Israel, and yet from that punishment would emerge a remnant who would be joined, according to Isaiah, by even Gentiles from across the world. But notice, in the prophets, it's mostly about an event that affects nations. Now, when we move to the time of Jesus... Uh, there's been a bit of a shift in the focus. It's now about individuals. And there's this hopeful concept in the New Testament that this day, the day of the Lord, will be the day when Jesus returns. And you get these wonderful visions in the book of Revelation. 144,000. Who are these? These are they who have come through the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them clean in the blood of the Lamb. Or that glorious vision at the end of Revelation of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. But as early Christianity got started, in about 300 years after that, the Emperor Constantine, head of the Roman world, used Christianity to try to unite his empire. And one of the ways he did that was to portray Jesus as a king. In fact, 
One of those is Constantine, and one of those is Jesus. And if you didn't read the writing, you wouldn't know which is which. And that kind of king idea comes up. Before that, Jesus is talked about as a shepherd. By the Middle Ages, Judgment Day has to do with an angry God who comes to punish those who have not made satisfaction for their sins, leading to all sorts of abuses against which Luther spoke at the time of the Reformation when he pointed folks again to Jesus. So there's a lot of themes intermingling in this whole concept of Judgment Day across the history of God's people. But what does Jesus have to say about it? Jesus tells a parable of the lost sheep. It's a parable, one of three that we've been considering over these last Sundays. The ten maidens, the talents, and now the sheep and the goats. But what exactly is a parable? Let's do a little review. I'm a college prof, I'm sorry. <laughs> but we have to do some of these things, right? A parable is a metaphor drawn from daily life. If you've got something you can't really put in human words, you take something you know, a factor in daily life, and you use it to say, well, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And so parables often start with that language. Parables focus on the, the kingdom or reign of God, often with a future view. This is what it will be like. Generally, there's one point of comparison, so you want to look for that. And once in a while, in fact, quite often, I would maintain, there's always a surprise in a parable. Let me illustrate that for you. You know the parable of mustard seed? Kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. What's a mustard seed? You know, a tiny little thing. You plant it in the ground. And what do you get? You get a tree that all the birds of the air can rest in. Really? No. If you plant a mustard seed, you get a mustard shrub. That's what you get. And they're like weeds in the Holy Land. So if the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that becomes a tree, surprise, something miraculous is going on here in the kingdom of God. You follow me? There's often a surprise. Here's another one. Remember the parable of the sower goes out to sow and the seed falls on the path and the thorny places, rocky ground. And we all understand that. And it falls in good soil and it produces what? Big crop. Does anyone know the numbers? 30, 60, or 100. Well, what do seeds planted in good ground in the Holy Land 2,000 years ago produce? Six, seven, maybe eight. If it's a good year. If you're getting 30 or 60 or 100, why, that's amazing. That's almost, that's better than Garst Seed Company can do in Iowa with the corn, you know. It's just amazing. That's what the kingdom of God is like. You want to look for those surprises in parables. So, it's a parable of sheep and goats. Starts with a throne room scene. The Son of Man, the parable begins. That's a designation Jesus used for himself. Is a, sitting on his royal throne as a king. And all the nations are gathered before him. That language he will use again. In the gospel, go make disciples of all nations. There's a connection here, folks. And he's, there's a separation. As a shepherd does what? 
separates sheep from goats. When you see the word as, that's the point of comparison in a parable. That's the thing you want to focus on. To those on the right, the sheep, he says, Come, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom, for I was hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, in prison, and you cared for me. And they're called righteous there, which means observant. They say, when do we do this? And he says, as often as you did it for one of the least of these, you did it to me. And then he turns to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed. And the direction they're headed is not pleasant, believe me. For when I was hungry, thirsty, stranger, sick, naked, in prison, you did not. When did we not? As often as you didn't do it for the least of these, my brothers, you didn't for me. And there is a separation. That's how the parable ends. And we're sitting there feeling a little bit afraid, aren't we? Because it sounds like judgment will be based on what you and I do. Our status before God for all eternity will be determined by what we do. We find ourselves doing a rerun of last Sunday, right? Because when we first heard the parable of the talents, we were thinking of our skills and abilities, and, and then all of a sudden we go down that rabbit hole of what God is about is sort of like some talent show that, at which you have to perform, or Jesus is some kind of Santa Claus making his list and checking it twice, right? And what was the key to unlocking that parable last week? It was the point of comparison. The talent, which is not about skills and abilities, it's about weight. The sheep and the goats are the point of comparison in our story. How does that help us? Well, I, I will be real honest. I struggled with this parable for years. And I got my eyes opened one time when I was meeting with some Lutheran pastors in Bethlehem. Did you know there are Lutherans in the Holy Land? Anybody know that? There are. About three, 4,000. They're Palestinians. And we were talking about hard texts, and I raised this one. And one of the guys said, well, you just don't understand. He said, look, Palestinian shepherds always mix their sheep with the goats, right? I thought, yeah, that's what I've seen. That's Palestinian shepherd. Notice who's up front. There's a goat. Why do you mix sheep with goats? The goats know the right thing to do. They're not going to go out in the street when a truck is coming along. Sheep? Well, that's why you mix the goats in there, folks. All right, that's why you mix the goats. He said to me, the story's got it backwards. The ones who should be on the right, who know the right thing to do, are the goats. But it's reversed in the story. That's the good news. The order has been reversed. Reversal is a key theme in the teaching of Jesus. The last will be first, and the first last. Think of all the parables of Jesus in which the person you least expected receives a benefit. There's a wedding banquet. All the invited folks, oh, I'm too busy. So who gets to come? Folks from the highways and byways. 
Or that parable of the Pharisee and tax collector, the really religious guy and the not-so-religious guy, go to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee says, I thank you, God, I'm not like all these other sinners like this guy over here. Who went down justified? The tax collector, because he prayed from a distance, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. How about the story of the 99 and the 1, the lost sheep? Who brings joy to the shepherd? That stupid sheep that keeps running away that he can bring home on his shoulders rejoicing, right? Or consider the parable of the prodigal son. Is it the good and faithful son who gets the party? No, my son who is lost but has been found. Kill the fatted calf. Jesus did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Perhaps one of the best stories to illustrate this is the story of the woman caught in adultery from John chapter 8, right? She should be stoned, said those who brought her to Jesus. And Jesus said, let the person without sin cast the first stone. And gradually they all went away, the accusers. Jesus turned to the woman and said, who is left to condemn you? No one, sir. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Just like this woman, we truly deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Remember that language from some of our confessions? And just like this woman, just like the sheep, we received grace and mercy Instead, God is not Santa Claus. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. God's judgment is a judgment of acceptance. I accept you. One of the most important Bible passages in the Bible is Romans 1 8, or excuse me, 8 1. Got the numbers backwards. I'm a little tired. Too much turkey, I guess. How does that verse read? If you haven't underlined it in your Bible, underline it in your Bible, highlight it on your phone, whatever. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period, end of sentence. No conditions there. You have to go to church, you got to give it, you know, all that kind of stuff. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And how does this come about? Because God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might receive the righteousness of God in him, Paul writes. Luther talked about that as the great exchange. Jesus takes my sin, I get his righteousness. Jesus died that we might live. To help my students understand this, I use the $100 illustration. How exactly does this all work? I say, okay, let's pretend for a moment. I got a hold of your roommate and gave your roommate a $100 bill and told the roommate, put that under your friend's mattress. Okay, and your roommate did that. So I'm giving you $100. No strings attached. It's yours. No conditions. If the student believes me, what's the student going to do in this hypothetical situation? This is hypothetical. I don't go handing out $100 bills all over the place. 
The students would like it if I do that, but I don't. <laughs> hypothetical. What would the student? What would the hypothetical student do? Go home, pull the mattress off the bed, get the hundred bucks, and have a pizza party, or maybe buy finally pay for their biology textbook, one or the other, <laughs> right? But the student who doesn't believe me isn't going to go home, turn the mattress over. The hundred dollars is still theirs. It's my gift. But if you don't believe, there's no benefit. At the heart of this parable is something very simple. On Judgment Day, I just want to be a sheep. Now that silly little song is going through your head, isn't it? Part three. Acceptance means acceptance. Even if at the heart of the parable is this great reversal, that sheep are blessed. The litany of actions for the hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, and imprisoned is not far from that heart. If God accepts you and me, we can accept others, right? Because God accepts you and me, we get to accept others. Heard that word before? We affirm God's acceptance of us by accepting others. Acceptance means acceptance. Now, admittedly, that's kind of hard to do at this time in our culture when our politicians and personalities and social media foster hate. We're pushed to think of the other as an enemy or a threat, when in fact they're just our neighbors. And Jesus died for them too. And we might even end up spending eternity with them. Acceptance means acceptance. And no one knows that more than someone who is hungry or thirsty or sick or naked or in prison. And there are plenty of other folks for whom circumstances are not so dire but who also yearn for acceptance. You and I, who have been accepted, we get to come alongside such folks. Accept them, because Christ offered his life for them too. And we get to love them as we love Christ. In fact, I would suggest that acceptance is the first step toward becoming a Christian. Now, Typically, we talk about three things that are involved in folks becoming Christian. Believing, behaving, and belonging. And we typically treat those in that order. So we start with instruction class or confirmation class, catechism. That's all about believing. And what's the first thing in the catechism? Ten Commandments. That's all about behaving. Maybe someday we'll get to belonging, although you and I have been to plenty of churches, right, where you go and visit and no one says hello. That's a problem. But there's no teaching or memorizing in this list of actions. 
Instead, the words of Jesus invite us to embrace others and welcome even the least of these. Acceptance means acceptance. The Christian life I maintain starts with belonging. Acceptance is at the heart of this story, and it's at the heart of the mission of the church. Acceptance. Judgment is acceptance. Now, there have been a lot of unexpected endings in the stories we've considered recently. From the parable of the maidens, it's not the oil that matters, but trusting the bridegroom. From the parable of the talents, what are you going to do now that you don't have to do anything? From the song of Zechariah and the birth of John, blessing God in a way that invites others to join the praises. From the parable of the sheep and the goats, it's the sheep who end up on the right side. And we, we just want to be a sheep. And to, with open arms, welcome so many others into the fold. Time for takeaways. Judgment is not about what you do. It's about what God does in Jesus. God offers acceptance to all. And we accept others, even the least. And in so doing, we point them to Christ. So, what do you get to do this week? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.